Well, I wanna say hi to everybody who's a part of this service, whether you're watching online or whether you're at one of our campuses. My name is Jason and I am so thrilled that you are here today as we start day one of a brand new series on a topic that we really, really need to hear more about. We are beginning a series today talking about joy. And joy is one of those things that seems to be in short supply in our world at this moment, doesn't it? It's one of those topics that uh, just seems like it's so easy to put your mind around until you really start to focus or until you go through a situation or a period of time where it seems like it's elusive. Maybe you feel that way right now. And then joy seems to be this, this idea that can't be grabbed, that can't be held. Joy seems to escape us so often. What I want to talk to you about for the next few minutes and what we're going to discuss together over the next few weeks is the idea of a joy that is deeper, that is more lasting, that's more durable, a joy that's impervious to the circumstances that are around us, a joy that we can have right now. And so we're going to be looking at lots of scriptures over the next few weeks. We're going to look at it from different angles on how do you find it to how do you keep it? How do you give it away to what is joy exactly? And as we do all of that, I want to invite you to engage by writing these scriptures down. I'll remind you of that again at the end of the message. But I want you to have a record of all these things so that you can constantly go back and fill your mind with the truth that joy is possible. To do that, we're going to be starting with this one scripture passage I want to read to you that I really think it just resonates so well with where we are in our lives and in our time right now. It's written by a guy named Peter, and Peter was one of Jesus' early disciples. Uh, he was a follower who was uh, very close to Jesus and had a huge impact on the world. And Peter is a guy who knew something about joy. He was writing this letter called 1 Peter to a group of Christians who had been dispersed. They were kind of in exile all throughout the Roman Empire in a place called Asia Minor. And they had gone through a ton of trials, difficulty in the, the uh, social and the economic world. They had difficulty because they were, they were being pressured and persecuted, oppressed because they were followers of Jesus. And in the middle of all that, Peter writes a couple of letters that are just beautiful and helping them understand how they could have joy. And I think... If you and I will listen, we can hear exactly what we need for today in this letter. So we're going to start in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. And I'm going to ask wherever you are, in your living room, in your kitchen, at any of our campuses right now, if you would, out of reverence for the reading of Scripture, if you're able, would you stand? We read together this. Peter has just written in the opening lines about this inheritance and eternal and living hope that people have because Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. And because of their trust in him, they now can hold surely and certainly to their future. And here's what he says, starting in verse six. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him. And here it is. And you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. This is God's word. You can be seated. Before we jump into looking at this idea, I want to ask you a question. Who 
is the most joyful person that you know. Like seriously, take five seconds right now and picture their face. Imagine the person who's most joyful in your life. I can almost see you smiling right where you are. Just the thought of a joyful person causes us uh, to begin to feel a, a lightness, to feel happy, to, to actually be attracted to them, isn't it? Joyful people are magnetic. They, they're attractive. They're, they, want, uh, they make us want to be with them and to be like them. There's, there's something about a person full of joy that everybody wants to be around. Now, I wanna make you a, a little bet. My guess is none of you, when I ask you who's the most joyful person you know, none of you said God. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, if you did, put it in the chat if you're watching online or, or raise your hand and one of the ushers at one of our locations can come by with your prize. But my guess is that's not who anybody put first on their list was God being joyful. Now, I'll give it to you. Maybe it's because, you know, I said person and, and you haven't thought of him as a person and that's a topic for another day because he certainly is. But mostly it's because we just have this concept of God that, that joy and happy and laughing doesn't seem to be the first thing that comes to mind. Often we think of God as somber, serious, maybe even angry, judgmental, suspicious. That's the kind of God many of us picture. And I think that's part of our problem with finding joy wherever we are right now. Because God, at his essence, at his core, the very nature of God is joy. God is so many things. He represents and embodies love and justice and holiness and all of those things, wisdom and faithfulness. All of that is a part of what it means to be God, but it's also a part of what it means for him to be joyful. God is the supreme source and particularly Christ is the supreme source of our joy. I wanna show you how that is in just a few minutes as we walk through a couple of passages of scripture. Uh, but really think about this, God's very existence is marked with joy all the time because, and you could imagine this, what if everything that you wanted to happen always happened in exactly the way that it should? Oh, what if everything that you made Everything that you designed, what if it always worked exactly the way that you want it to work? Or what if you were able to see far into the future and always know that the outcome that was on its way, that was certain, would always be the one that you had picked? You would be, like God, full of joy too. And, and all of the things about him that allow for his joy, they can also give us joy. Because see, as humans, as created beings, we were made from joy and for joy. Uh, everything about God, uh, about his characteristics should make us find joy. Like his wisdom is for us guidance, Spurgeon said. His love is for us certainty. Uh, his grace is for us salvation. Uh, his faithfulness is for us um, uh, certainty. Again, like everything about God allows us to be able to think of who he is and what he does and know, man, that should make me joyful. In fact, God designed us to be uh, little containers of joy. When he made the universe at the very beginning, he, he thought of all the things that he wanted to put into it and every single one of them were to bring praise and glory to him. All of them were designed to make much of or to make him famous. And he loves looking at his creation at work. That's why sin, where his creation is not operating as it should, that's why it, it can bother him so much. It's why it was so necessary for him to deal with it. Because God takes joy from trees waving their branches 
He takes joy from the ocean lapping at the beach. He takes joy from stars that take their turns twinkling. And he takes joy in watching humans serve and love their neighbors. Everything about what God does brings him praise and brings him joy. And, and you know where he gets most, the most joy? Where, where, where we find like the center of the thing that just makes him, in fact, scripture says, makes him dance. It's you. It's me. It's the humans that he's madly in love with. Now, we were in a way created from this joy because at some point God's love and his desire for things to rejoice over was so big and couldn't be contained so much that it spilled over into him making more and more things to love and to be joyful about. And so that's where we came from in a way. It's always been this idea that God wanted us to be full of joy as we were in a relationship with him and experiencing all the goodness that he gave. But then sin and the fall broke all of that. And so now we're in this constant, what it feels like on our side, struggle to find and to hold on to joy. But, but I want you, before we go any further, even in this message, just think of the implication of this. Especially if when I mentioned God is the most joyful person you know, if your first thought was whatever, that's not true. If you think of God as angry, wrathful, and judgmental, think of this implication that the scripture says, that he is so in love with you, so madly in love with who you are and who you can become, with seeing the gifts that he's placed in us come to fruition and be used for his kingdom. He's so happy with having a relationship with us that he literally sings and dances over us. If you really sunk that deep down into your heart, think of what it might change in how you view yourself. It's a, on the path towards joy. So uh, today's message, I want to do uh, just in the next couple of minutes, a few things just to help us define what joy is. I want to give us three clues from different scripture passages of what it joy is, and then give us a definition that we can use throughout this series. And then I want to tell you real quickly how you might choose it over the next week, some specific ways that you and I can increase our joy level in the next seven days. But first, what is joy? Joy is often, um, it's often contrasted to happiness. And, and the way that biblically we think about this is that, that happiness is one of the circumstantial kind of emotions. Uh, happiness is based on how things are going in our life often. We can create happiness. We can find something that makes us feel this lightness uh, that might make us smile that can be in relationships or in nature or in something that we read. Uh, all of those things can bring happiness, even a good meal. But but joy is something deeper. It's this, it's John Piper who says, it's this good feeling down deep in the soul and the spirit that's created by the spirit himself that lasts. It's impervious to circumstances. It's indestructible by crises. Joy is the result of being in a relationship with God. So first, let me give you these three clues. We're gonna look at three scriptures. First one is Galatians 5.22. And again, hey, write this down. Put it in your notes on your phone. Put it somewhere that you can come back to often this week. The first one is this. Galatians 5.22 says that joy is a fruit. The writer, Paul, says the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The, those things, including joy, are the, the fruit or the produce, the products of the spirit at work 
in a person's life. It's made by God. And he calls it a fruit. Um, this summer or spring, actually, for the very first time, my wife, Jessica, planted a garden for us. We never tried that before. Uh, and she got out there, you know, when the weather was right, and she began putting into the ground seeds of tomatoes and cucumbers, peppers and kale, all the kind of stuff we're supposed to trade our Chick-fil-A sandwiches for. But she got all that stuff in the ground. And then now, several months later, we've, through patience and through allowing uh, nature to do what it does, we're starting to get fruit from that. Now, you could say that Jessica grew this fruit. And in a way, I guess that would make sense. But really, the plants are doing the fruiting. It's, it's what she places the seed that was put into the ground as it interacts with the, the forces and the elements of life, like sun and soil. It does the production of fruit. It causes beautiful red tomatoes to come onto a vine and cucumbers and, and all the things that the plant itself was designed to make. It happens when the right relationship is maintained between the seed itself and the elements surrounding it. Paul says, in a way, this is exactly what is happening in the life of a person who's following Jesus, a believer. Uh, the, the seed of faith is planted deep into our life and then the spirit, God in the spirit, begins to cause the product of love to spring up from that seed. The product of peace and joy to come from that. So, so in a way, joy is not something that we can make ourselves. It's something that God does in the soil of our souls. And once it gets started, you can't stop it. Kind of like, have you ever heard of uh, volunteer tomatoes? You know, where their seeds uh, get kind of thrown on the ground or put in the compost pile or something. And you can't stop those plants from coming up. Once it's there in the environment, you can't stop the growth. That is what should be happening with joy in our lives. It's a fruit. Secondly, joy is a response. Psalm 92 verses four and five says this. Speaking of God, for you have made me rejoice, Lord, by what you've done. I will shout for joy because of the work of your hands. I'm looking, God, at what you've accomplished, at what you're doing in the world. And as I watch you at work, I just can't help but rejoice, but clap, but, but, but praise you. Joy is a response. He says, how magnificent are your works, Lord? How profound your thoughts. Joy is when we get this picture, when we start to understand and see how God is operating and what comes over of is, is us is just this awe. It's just this experience of like, wow. I would have never thought that. I would have never worked out that situation. God, I would never have been able to love that way. And, and I'm just amazed that is joy. It's responding to what God has done. And then thirdly, I want to show you today that joy is strength. Joy is strength. We're going to be looking for a few minutes at Nehemiah chapter eight. And I want to give you some context. And then I'm going to read a verse that for many of you, if you've been around church for a while, this is familiar, but you may not have really understood or thought deeply about what it means. So Nehemiah uh, was one of the, the Jewish, the Israelites who had been in the exile. And he finds himself in the Persian uh, empire after it's been trans, uh, transferred from the Babylonians. And Nehemiah it decides, he goes to the king and he says, I wanna go back to Jerusalem, to the place of my home. Uh, the temple has been rebuilt, but it is just, it, it's, there's devastation all around. And I wanna go back and I wanna make it right. And so uh, long story, but the, the emperor allows him to go 
and he allows him to go to this project of rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem, of making safe again and putting in the guardrails and barriers for the people, for their worship and for their life. And so he goes and there's another guy named Ezra who wrote a book as well. And Ezra is like the priest that accompanies Nehemiah. And together they go through this building project and then they get to the end. Um, and ever, after working through all this stuff to make the people have a home again, to find a place where they might experience joy again after their exile, uh, they have this, well, it's really just like an outdoor church service. It's crazy. All the people were told, uh, they gather up outside and from the break of dawn until noon, Ezra and the other priests, they find the books of the law. They find God's word written to him, the, the rules. Um, but you might think of it more, not even as rules, more of like the vows. These are like the wedding vows of the covenant that God had given to his people. And, and they begin to read these aloud and all the people are gathered standing listening. Can you imagine if we did a stand-up outdoor service for like six or seven hours? Well, in the process of this, the people are hearing God's word to them and they're remembering what he had promised about being their God and them being uh, his people, about his love and his faithfulness for them. And this is all in the context of looking at the world around and everything looks like it's falling apart. And as they hear more and more the truth of how God feels about them, they begin to weep. They start to grieve and they mourn. And at one point, everybody is kind of on their face and in tears. And then we read these words in Nehemiah 8, 10. What's happened is the people have had this celebration that suddenly when confronted with truth, it turned into a, a funeral. They realized they were dead. And Nehemiah says this, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared for this day is holy to our Lord. This day where you finally came face to face with what it is that God is asking of you and what he is promising to you, this is holy. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah says, look, look, stop all the crying. I, I know it's bad, it's terrible. It's worse than terrible. Oh, we are lost and yet... We need to turn this into a celebration. There is joy to be found here. And that joy, he says, it's God's joy that will become your strength. Now, I have heard that phrase quoted a ton of times. You might have too. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And yet for so many years, I didn't have any clue of what that meant. What does it mean that the joy of the Lord is my strength? Well, God in this moment is giving us an understanding of the real definition of joy. The joy that God possesses in himself, that which he has about his creation and about you and me and about the relationship he wants to have with us, that produces joy in him that now we can re rely on, lean on to be our strength. When our situation is dark and difficult, when we failed and we feel guilty and shameful, in that moment, that's exactly when, as Nehemiah said, we shouldn't start acting like a funeral, but we should begin to rejoice. And here's why. In Nehemiah 9, 17, he gives the, the clue. He says, because you are a forgiving God. Yes, people, we failed. We've lost this cup. We've broken our end of the bargain. We've broken our vows like a, a, a spouse that has cheated and deserted and left their lover. We have done all of that. 
And yet God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, therefore you did not desert them. The sorrow that the people felt for rejecting God, it turned their hearts, made them soft and turned them toward obedience. And so Nehemiah says, look, look, here's the great news. The the bad news is worse than you thought. We absolutely deserve punishment. We deserve to be separated from him forever. We deserve for him to never be our God again. But our God is so gracious, is so loving, is so faithful that even when we turned our back on him, he did not desert us. And so Nehemiah with a lot of wisdom says, go throw a party. Go make this the source of joy for you. Look, when we grasp how much God is willing and has already done to bring us back into a relationship with him, that causes joy to spring up in us. And when you focus on it, when you, when you stare it in the face, this is what Jesus did, right? We told in Hebrews uh, that he, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus, as he was going through the most difficult, painful, humiliating, excruciating, evil thing that had happened to a human, to the most just and innocent human ever, As he went through that, what allowed him, scripture tells us, to continue to persevere through it was the joy of you and me being put back in relationship with God. It was worth it to him. Just a couple of weeks ago, we finished up Mark and we looked at the crucifixion in detail at how he experienced isolation and darkness and pain. And in all of that, imagine for a second, someone that was so madly in love with you right now, that they found joy in going through all of the crucifixion so that you and I could be okay, so that we could be rescued, so that we could be back in relationship with him. When you grasp that idea, it becomes strength. You understand that that you have certainty in God being for you and with you. You can have joy that's deeper than momentary happiness based on your circumstance because you get that nothing can shake that. If he would go through that, what would he not deal with? What would he not remove? What obstacles would he not show up to to, to put out of the way to make sure that you and he are in relationship? Folks, what this means is that if you find yourself in a chapter that you don't like and you don't understand, remember that the end of the story is already written, that God will not leave you in that place, but he ultimately will bring you into a beautiful ending of that story. It means that if you're waiting on your healing and it hasn't come and you're afraid it's never gonna come, he promises that it will. there's a certainty and a joy you find when you realize the strength you can hold on to because of what Jesus has already done. That healing will come this side of eternity or the next, but it's coming. That, that the guilt that you feel has been done away with. One writer looking at these uh, folks who were standing there around Nehemiah and Ezra, he said, these vow breakers, imagine being at the altar in front of the spouse you had promised in marriage many, many years ago and standing there with all your shame, imagine looking in their face and they smile and they put their arms around you and they say, my love will take you a vow breaker and turn you into a vow keeper. I still want you. I haven't left you. I will not desert you. You can't do anything to lose my love. That joy provides strength. Joy, then, here's our definition. 
Joy is the product of a plan to restore our souls, our relationship to God, and our future. The kind of joy that's unstoppable. The kind of joy that will help you and me get through whatever we're in right now and whatever will come is the product of the plan God has enacted. And in fact, on the cross, when Jesus said it is accomplished, that he finished that plan to restore our soul and restore our relationship to him and to secure our future. That is where joy comes from. But we have to choose to grab it, to look at it, to hold on to it. Back, back to our, my garden example. We planted all this stuff and the fruit's coming up, right? But you could choose to go out to the garden every day. Jessica could walk out there and only see the bugs that are eating some of the leaves and where the deer had come through the night before and eaten off some of the fruit, the, the couple of things that were spoiled and rotten and had fallen. She could choose to focus on only that or to focus on all of the work or the fact that it's not gonna rain like we thought this week. She could focus on everything else. But you know what I see her do every morning? She walks out and with her hands on her hips, she looks around at the fruit that's beginning to come up and she finds joy in it. She recognizes that it's there. Folks, this is what we have to do for joy. It is a choice. Paul wrote in Philippians 4, 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always, but put action, turn joy into a verb, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. Because to rejoice is a choice. You have to choose to look at that. And if you and I will this week, and I'm gonna invite you to do this, every day this week to begin your day by stopping and thinking about one, how madly in love God is with you. That he would go through this plan. First, that he would put a plan in place to rescue and redeem you and me at all. As fouled and as failing and as messed up as we are. Secondly, not only did he put a plan in place, but he accomplished it. And now he takes joy in imagining our relationship back. If you will focus on that daily, you will find, and I need this too, we will find joy begin to spring up from places that we never could have guessed, from places that we didn't plant it. Fruit, that's simply the result, the product of being in a right relationship with God and the source of life. So two things this week. First is choose Christ. You, you, to get this joy, you have to surrender your life to him. We choose him. We choose to say, I trust that your sacrifice, that your life was enough for me. And I want that dynamic life that you offer Jesus. We choose to place our faith in him. And then second, we choose to focus, focus on what he's done. Like Nehemiah taught us, focus on what he's already done to bring you here and allow that to cause joy that becomes your strength. I'd like to pray for us now. And I want to encourage you this week, find that supreme source of joy in Jesus alone and hold on to it. And next week, we'll talk about some more practical ways to daily choose it. But can we pray together now? Father, I pray first that you would give us a picture of your joy, that you would give us uh, a glimpse, that you would give us in our hearts a moment, a feeling that we could experience the joy that you have over us, over redeemed creation and souls. Father, I pray for any who are watching, who are here, 
that have not yet chosen to surrender their life, Jesus, that haven't chosen you, I pray right now you'd help them, give them the faith and the courage to choose you to say, yes, I give my life, I surrender it to you. I trust your sacrifice as the payment for my sin and I accept your grace and forgiveness. And Father, I pray for all of us as we try to focus this week, as we try to put joy, your joy for us, God, in front of our mind's eye, to turn it and to look at it and to, to dig deeply into it. God, I pray that you would magnify it. You would cause it to be expanded in our minds and in our hearts. And that you would give us strength from it to keep going, to stay hopeful, to continue to serve, to continue to love, in all the places where we've lost joy now, God, would you replace it with the only kind, the only real joy that lasts with yourself. We thank you for the internal inheritance of our life because of your resurrection, Jesus. And we base this prayer on that. In your name, amen.